Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on the Peace Building Podcast uh, from Conflict to Common Ground. It's great to have you all with us. I have Melanie Greenberg uh, with me on the show today. I met her at the Alliance for Peacebuilding Conference in Washington a bit ago, and she stood out to me as such a fresh, clear voice with lots of intelligence and integrity to spare, and just somebody that I'd like to get to know better. So um, after a few glitches with technology, which always completely stressed me out, and she was incredibly understanding about, uh, we were able to have a great conversation. Let me tell you about a little bit about Melanie. She is currently the Managing Director at Humanity United, overseeing the peacebuilding and conflict transformation portfolio. Uh, In this capacity, she develops and refines and implements strategies to build peace and counter violent conflict. Um, She was the president and CEO of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And before that, she was the president and founder of the Cyprus Fund for Peace and Security. And then her bio is amazing. It just keeps going with uh, the numbers of different positions that she's held, which are really impressive. I will post it on the website. And has helped uh, design and facilitate public peace processes in the Middle East, Northern Ireland, and the Caucasus, and much more. Take a look at her bio. It's, It's really super interesting. So uh, some of the things that stand out to me about this interview, I think uh, our commonality um, that both of us grew up in, quote unquote, safe places. She in New Haven, Connecticut in the United States and me on Long Island in the United States, uh, both protected but surrounded um, by much more violent situations around us, which we were both observing as kids. We also, it seems like, had a similar reaction to the American legal system, which is known as the adversary system. And it's, uh, as Melanie says, antagonistic by design. It made her kind of miserable, uh, particularly in her first year. She talks about that. And um, I know myself, I often think that while I think the process, the American legal system, the system of rights is very valuable for democracy. It also has gotten us into a lot of escalating um, conflict, which I think the the movement of people that are focusing on mediation and negotiation is uh, there to counter. She does a great job talking about the origins of the field that is now known as peacebuilding, which, which kind of emerged in uh, I think around 1990 and was first articulated by Boutros Boutros Ghali from the United Nations. And she describes it as a kind of different streams coming together, the Vietnam anti-war movement, the anti-nuclear movement, the movement that was happening in the legal community known as ADR or alternative dispute resolution, uh, the environmental movement, which was needing large-scale consensus processes for resolving disputes. This is obviously a very U.S. focus that I'm talking about right now. But all of these things inspired people to act for themselves, um, that uh, building peace wasn't just something that governments um, had to work on. It was something that citizens could work on. And that was sort of the or- that was the origins of peace building. She gives a great definition of peace building, and I will just have to listen to the episode to hear it. And I asked her to talk about some of the things she sees happening in the field. One of them 
is uh, that she sees that peace building is really moving out of its niche and uh, being incorporated systemically into lots of organizations and fields. Um, she also mentioned something really interesting, uh, for instance, the military, how it's influencing the U.S. military, which is taking a more of a supportive role for citizen-led initiatives and very interested herself in um, the connections between peace building, neuroscience, and spirituality, and a bit about what she's seeing there. She also mentions, interestingly, an initiative um, that's getting to the marketing of the word peace, because lots of times, um, particularly in this culture of the United States, we have such a news culture of it, if it bleeds, it leads. So sometimes, you know, peace doesn't seem as exciting. But um, actually, many of the large peace-building organizations have come together to get the advertising agencies on the case and uh, to work about how to communicate the concept, to talk about, uh, they have something at this point called Peace Plus. And certainly I know from my work uh, with groups and conflict that um, it's always more effective to talk about the positive thing that you're trying to create rather than the negative thing that you're trying to avoid. We had decided when we did our pre-interview that we really wanted to talk about the United States. Melanie um, describes the United States at this point as a peace-building case, that all of the criteria um, that are flags for peace-building initiatives are happening in this country. One of the examples she talks about is something called Hands Across the Hills, where actually something that uh, the person who's facilitated that's name is Paula Green, and um, that uh, groups in eastern Kentucky and western Massachusetts, eastern Kentucky, which is a very conservative area, and western Mass, which is a very liberal area, have been meeting regularly in um, small groups to get to know each other better, to reduce the polarization, to build understanding as an experiment in peace building in this country. So she talks about that process, which is still underway. So whether you are somebody who formally considers yourself in the peace building world or someone who just simply is interested in uh, really knowing more about the field and uh, what's possible, I think you really enjoy this interview, really enjoy listening to Melanie and really enjoy her invitation at the end about how exciting it is to participate in this field. So um, thanks for joining us. And I bring you Melanie. So Melanie, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, join us on the Peace Building Podcast. It's uh, really a pleasure and an honor. You know, I'd like to start by just uh, hearing a little bit about you, but but most specifically, when you think about it, like what planted the seeds in you to be a peace builder? Like, how do you think you got to where you are now? Well, thank you, Susan, and I'm so delighted to be here. And that's a really complicated question because when I was growing up, uh, it was before the Cold War ended, there was really no such field as peace building. There was peace studies and there were mediators, but there wasn't what we call peace building as we understand it today. So I've always loved stories and languages. Um, I grew up, I went on foreign exchange programs. I read a great deal. I was a literature major, but I was always really interested also in 
how the world worked and arms control and you know other big systems of the world. Where did you grow up? In New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. So it was a very academic environment. I was very sheltered in many ways, although there's a tremendous amount of violence. New Haven. Um, and it's something that always puzzled me. And I wondered, you know, how could such a rich and wealthy university live in an enclave that was so full of neediness and violence? And I just didn't even... Were your, were your parents academics? Is that why you were there? Yeah, my father's a cardiologist and my mother is a social worker. Uh-huh. And... They're both healers in their own right, right, but I really wouldn't connect that with peace building until much later. Yeah, but I relate to the violence around you because I grew up on Long Island and uh, there was just so much inter-ethnic conflict all around me mm-hmm. that really f- formed me and actually had a lot to do with that. And of course, the Vietnam War for me had a lot to do with why I got drawn into doing this kind of work. Um, so anyway, so you saw a lot of violence and, and how did that evolve into where you are now? Well, when I graduated from college as a comparative literature major, I felt I really wanted to know how the world worked. So I went to law school and was totally miserable my first year. Everyone else seemed to understand this language. Uh, Why is that? And the reason I ask is because, well, I do think maybe as someone who went through a legal education, an American legal education myself, I sometimes think there's some connections between how that's all taught and maybe what's going on in the world. But I'm curious, why, why were you miserable? <laughs> it was such, um, I mean, the process is antagonistic by design. Right. And it's meant to elicit the truth. But I just wasn't cut out that way. That in my, uh, I worked for a law firm for a summer and we were getting trained in like jury selection. And they had to totally coach me in how to do cross-examinations. Because I would ask very nicely and turn my voice up at the end of sentences it's like, no, you've got to learn to say yes or no answers. I want to just like highlight what you said about it's, it's designed to uh, reveal the truth. I think the American legal system, not like all legal systems, oh. but it's, is known as the adversary system. And uh-huh. basically the concept is through, through polarization, really, uh-huh. you will arrive at something that's true, which is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's questionable to me sometimes as a facilitator. Uh, I think sometimes it causes people to inflate, Uh uh, to exaggerate, to mislead. And when I'm actually working a group and creating a climate where they're actually talking to each other, I find they start sharing much more uh, honestly Uh than they might do if they were in a in an adversarial process. So I'm interjecting here and I want to hear more about how you got to be a peace builder. So after that miserable first year, I ended up working with death row prisoners in Georgia, Wow! where I got to see how the law really intersected with people's lives, both the victims and the defendants, and doing a lot of interview work with defendants' families to try to find mitigating evidence. And so I was really starting to see more of the kind of cultural environment and the way that the law intersects with real life and the very real problems within the Georgia justice system. Yeah. And just by coincidence, when I came back to law school at Stanford, a center had just opened up that brought together law, business, economics, and psychology, examining the barriers to conflict resolution. Wow. And I felt, this is how I want to see the world. It was multidisciplinary, multifaceted. Um, It was just fantastic. Yeah. And so that launched you basically in the field of, at that time, it wasn't really exactly peace building. 
It was um, called conflict resolution. It was at the, I graduated from law school in 1990. So just as the world was changing, right. before the idea that citizens could make peace had no traction. Right. Uh, it was governments that made peace. Right. But I was exposed uh, during law school and soon thereafter to public peace processes in the Middle East, in the Caucasus, uh, in Northern Ireland, that brought citizens together with influence in their own societies to in- imagine a, a common future. You know, hey, Melanie, you're probably as um, as authoritative as anybody could be um, on summarizing and, you know, briefly, because there's some things I want to ask you that, but, you know, how we got to peace building and how you would define mm-hmm. that phrase, because I think, you know, as you know, in this podcast, we're pretty uh, wide open in terms of how we're talking about it. We're not necessarily just doing the field of peace mm-hmm. building. So how do you define it and how did we get to the, the term peace building? Maybe I'll talk about how we got there before landing on a definition. Okay. That peace, of course, is nothing new, and people thinking about peace is not new. But I think the field as we know it evolved from several movements in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, from the Vietnam anti-war movement and also the anti-nuclear movement. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those inspired people to act in their own lives for peace Mm -hmm. and to understand peace in a much more holistic way. It wasn't just something that governments worked on, but that we all have a stake in peaceful societies. So I think that uh, stream merged with a stream in the legal field around alternative dispute resolution. Right. And again, this is more U.S. focused. Right. But the idea that it was so expensive to go to court and your cases on the civil side would have to wait you know, a decade to come to trial, that there had to be other forms And so a number of lawyers became more interested in mediation, arbitration, negotiation at a time. And also in the environmental movement, large scale consensus building processes were being developed for uh, resolving land disputes, Hmm. land and environmental disputes. Mm -hmm. So I think this all really came together in the late 80s, early 90s, as the wall was falling as Boutros Boutros Ghali at the UN was talking about a new way to think about peace building. He was one of the first to use the term mm. as opposed to peacekeeping or peace operations. That was early 90s. That well, term was uh-huh. started to be used often as two words, peace building. Yeah. Um, but then I think that the Hewlett Foundation also played a key role because it funded these theory centers around the country at top universities looking at conflict resolution from a huge range of perspectives, social work, political science, environmental science, health. So it started to seed academic programs, which then produced students who came out with this this set of skills that were broader than conflict resolution, that really got to what are the pillars that you need for a peaceful society. Mm -hmm. So peace building, to get to your question as a definition, for me, it's not about negative peace, which is the absence of violence. Peace building are the processes that societies use to resolve conflict, because there will always be conflict, but to do it through negotiation, dialogue, consensus building, and politics, rather than through deadly violence. Mm-hmm. And it can include development, humanitarian assistance, education, health, gender issues. Um, it can happen at a community level, at an international level but it is that those positive pillars of peace. It's, it's basically creating a kind of infrastructure mm-hmm. that makes it possible that we don't end up with deadly, armed deadly conflict. 
Mm-hmm. Infrastructure and processes. So it's like a matrix. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. processes. Yeah, well, um, thank you for that. And, and um, while we're there, you know, many of the people that I've interviewed and myself believe that it's really possible that in our lifetimes we actually could get to a place where we no longer have armed deadly conflict. Do you, do you feel hopeful about that? Or, do you, or rather, do you think that's possible? And then I should say, do you feel hopeful about it? <laughs> Maybe if I were younger, I would feel more yeah. optimistic that we get to zero. Yeah. But I do feel passionately that we have the tools ourselves everywhere to make peace. And, you know, we see it as peace builders in the most violent parts of the world. There are people who are making peace. It might just be at their own street corner but who are working to find creative ways to bridge enemy lines and to develop these new forms where people can live together. And I don't think that's Pollyanna-ish. There's evidence, there are methodologies. I think where we're really missing out is broad-based peace education, Mm -hmm. where children learn to resolve their own conflicts at a really broad scale. Because I think there's not an understanding that everyone has a role to play. Yeah. So... Then moving forward and thinking about the field, like what's most exciting, you know, where do you think the field is going? Do you think it's going to survive and thrive and all those things? And what's most exciting to you about what's happening? Either what's most exciting to you specifically, and maybe what's most exciting to you about what's happening. Well, I think for me, there are a few things that are the most exciting about what's happening. Um, And then I'll get to a very personal subfield. I'm given a lot of hope because peace building is moving out of its niche and is now being incorporated into so many other areas of public and private life. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, it's part of development very explicitly. It's part of humanitarian assistance. Uh, USAID recently reorganized their whole bureaucracy around the central idea of conflict. Um, you are seeing it more in schools. You're seeing corporations understand that peace building and working in conflict environments has to uh, take place at at the executive suite, not only through the corporate and social responsibility. Mm -hmm. So my great hope and excitement is in seeing these ideas spread even to the military, Mm -hmm. that the new stabilization assistance review with the US government talks about stabilization as being locally led, led by civilians with a peace building orientation that is um, supported by the military. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, much more, much more civilian, much more. Yes. Yeah, that's really and, interesting. And it, it reads like a peace-building definition of what a stable society is. Yeah. So that piece is extremely exciting for me. Yeah. Um, two others. One is that in the United States, we're recognizing that our society is now a peace-building problem. Mm-hmm. And that the issues we have around polarization, around... Um, elections, around uh, urban-rural divides. Almost any flashpoint you can imagine around the world is happening here. What a concept. (laughs) Exactly. We're not exceptional. Mm -hmm. And then the final area that I feel is really going to revolutionize our understanding of peace building is understanding the neuroscience of war and peace and trauma. And when we understand what's happening in our brains, we can really start to devise new ways of building peace. Well, I want you to talk about both of those things. They both sound, and, and maybe the, the, the second one first, uh, because uh, I know the whole field of epigenetics is emerging and oh. super interesting, but 
And I'm really interested in you talking about what you're seeing is working. Uh-huh. So maybe on that front, um, around the neuroscience part, what are you seeing and what gives you hope? So there's been some fascinating work done by neuroscientists like Emile Bruneau, who, by the way, started as a Seeds of Peace summer counselor who saw at the end of the summer that the kids who'd been getting along all summer broke into a physical altercation on the last day. Wow. And he thought, wow, we have to understand these processes better. So neuroscientists like Emil are taking what they're learning in the lab about how our brains respond to violence, to in-group and out-group relationships, um, to tolerance, and are extrapolating what might programs look like that are more sensitive to how our brains respond to threat and also respond to altruism because we're wired equally for violence as we are towards altruism and cooperation. Mm-hmm. So for example, he's working with uh, the, the authorities in Hungary on Roma tolerance programs and why they've worked. Roma. Roma, <laughs> formerly known as gypsies, yeah. But, yeah. Um, but seeing why their former programs did not work and trying to use neuroscientific insights to create better programs. Did he figure out what happened with the kids at Seeds for Peace? Or does he have a theory? I don't know. <laughs> you have to put him on your show. I think he certainly has a theory. Uh-huh. And so how is that specifically helping? Like, what, how is that um, helping transform what happens when you're like maybe a mediator or a facilitator actually working with people to try to bring people together? Well, there are a few different ways. So one body of research, which I've worked on, is linking the fields of peace building, neuroscience, and spirituality, mm-hmm. which very large, not just religion, but mindfulness and ritual and different kinds of practice. And the neuroscience is showing us that ritual around breath, um, around music, around movement, things that are incorporated in the DNA of, of spirituality and ritual around the world have effects in our brain to tamp down the fight or flight response. They tap down the us versus them mentality and they create a space. There's a place in your brain that deals with values. They create a space there for receptivity to different kinds of values. That's so interesting and and it's so connected. Priya Parker was on the show a while ago and she's really talking about, she's really been trying to create modern ritual. And I've been part of communities that are, you know, one of the problems with ritual is they tend to come, rituals tend to come from tribes or religions uh-huh. that aren't necessarily intercultural. And then so coming up with modern ritual that really allows all kinds of groups to come together around that ritual, I think is a really super wonderful challenge and um, takes a lot of creativity, but really important. And based on what you're saying, it's especially important because it can create a climate where people really can uh, be more open to the idea of, of uh, coming together. Now, it could also be used for ill, that those same dynamics can happen with ISIS, you know, with other groups that create rituals that bring people together to create meaning. So it's a double-edged sword that can be very powerful for peace. Right. So anything more about on the neuroscience end that um, you want to comment on? Well, just to give you an example that I think is fascinating about how we anchor social norms, for example, norms around peace and how we relate, There's been neuroscience done and and experimental psychology on shifting norms, and even the language you use, making a difference. So do you know the petrified forest? 
Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. It's uh, a national park where basically the trees oh. have been petrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had a terrible problem that people were stealing rocks. They would come in, just take a few, and they were losing a huge volume. So they said, um, in a sign to the, at the opening of the park, we're having a terrible problem with people taking rocks. Please respect our park and don't take rocks anymore. And the problem actually increased. More rocks were taken. Hmm. And social scientists were baffled. Yeah. But then they thought, well, maybe we're setting a norm. When you say everybody is stealing rocks, right. that's setting up an unconscious norm right. that it's okay to right. do that. Right. So they said, instead, join your fellow park goers in keeping our park pristine. Please keep the rocks inside. And then the, the percentage decreased again. So just the way we frame these complex issues of peace as norms could be very, very, um, we, we can manipulate them in a positive way. Yeah, so what do you do with it? You know, I mean, this is a question, of course, for any of us that are in the field, like, oh, the term peace in some circles is kind of like, eh, a little bland. It's not, you know, kind of like uh -huh. our media is all, the United States, the media is all, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, it's uh -huh. exciting, it's sleepy. So what do you do with that? You know, being somebody who's in the field of peace building, how do you frame it so that it feels exciting to people around you and to you? Actually, to go to experts that for a long time, peace builders try to do this ourselves. And for all of our strengths, we're not marketing geniuses. Yeah. We tend to get very wonky and technical. We can argue for 30 years about the definition of peace building. <laughs> so recently, a number of uh, the largest peace building organizations have joined together in a coalition to try to reframe peace and to develop campaigns to attract people into the idea of peace, that they can be peace builders. And I've worked with advertising agencies with a group in Washington called Frameworks, which helps frame complex policy kinds of debates, um, just to find like, what is the language? It might not be the word peace, yeah. but what are the ways that other people can feel drawn in? Yeah, that's really, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether the word peace is, you know, is it or not? So they're not coming up with anything specifically at this point. Not quite yet, but it was very interesting just in how the coalition was named. Okay. There was a real pull between should it be something like end violence or something like build peace and which attracts people more. And yeah, what did they say? You don't know what they said. They, they ended up when it's now called plus peace. Yeah, because I would certainly, I mean, you know, I, I, you know one of my quotes that I use for this podcast is, is um, the best, way to, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Ooh, you know, and nice. I, yeah. yeah, and I think basically it's, and as, a, as somebody who works with, you know, like as a mediator, when you put the positive uh -huh. thing that you're trying to create, you're much more uh -huh. likely to make it happen than the negative, you know, that don't think about the pink elephant problem. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Melanie, let's, let's go to the United States thing because both you and I are United States citizens. And I think when we first talked to each other about this podcast, I think we both realized we were both interested in that topic. And uh -huh. And I certainly know somebody who travels a lot uh, that um, I sometimes feel like, wow, people in the United States don't quite realize how much of a war zone we're living in. And mm -hmm. I, even, I would use that phraseology. Yeah. I think it's, a, mm -hmm. it's uh, the fact that so much of our resources are going into to the military, into militarization, into domination around the world, it affects our entire culture. It mm -hmm. affects how we raise boys. It affects how we're dealing with girls. It affects, you know, the race issue. Um, but that's me talking. So I'm curious for you, like you said, 
as somebody who's a formal in the formal profession of peace building that the United States is a your phrase was a peace building problem. Uh-huh. What are the criteria that make you say that? So many of the red flags that a peace builder would see working around the world in Honduras, in Syria, in Venezuela, in Sierra Leone are showing up here, and yet we don't always name it. Um, Our words are different, our mental models are different. If you look at the level of gun violence in some of our cities in Baltimore and Chicago, it looks a lot like Central America. Right. Where it's structural violence, it's not war, but the numbers of people who are are dying are very high. Mm -hmm. To get to your point very specifically, the literal hardware that we're using to fight war around the world is coming back to our communities where police departments are increasingly using this return military material in their own use. So they're increasingly- I didn't know anything about that. So why? Because they're not being used in Afghanistan or or they're they're no longer useful in certain places. And so then then they're Mm -hmm. back? It's a secondary market. And it's part also of this cycle of increasing violence within- uh, cities, as the caliber of the weaponry increases by people using guns, then the police respond, and it's you have this escalation. So just the pure level of violence is one piece. I remember um, when I, I was in South Sudan, and, and a gentleman who was in his fifties, he'd fought in the in the civil war there, and he, I just remember him saying something like, "You know, nothing is really going to change here until all the small arms stop getting dropped on our country." Mm-hmm. You know, and. And I think about here, how many, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm very close where I live is very close to Sandy Hook where Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you know, but many, many listeners may not know that was where a whole lot of preschool kids were gunned down. Um, It wasn't just preschool, but young kids in a really tragic school shooting of which we have had many, many, many in this country. And the ripple effects of that violence, and Susan, you you had touched a, a tender point this week is Jeremy Richmond, one of the fathers of the Sandy Hook um, children who was who was killed mm. is a neuroscientist who, after her murder, dedicated his life to finding an end to violence, and he committed suicide this week. Oh wow! So just we see these ripple effects. It doesn't stop with one incident; it goes it ripples. So, and what you know, this is not exactly about the United States, but in terms of intergenerational, is there anything that you're learning about intergenerational trauma? Because I know there is a lot more focus on that. I see some interesting thinkers, Terry Real, who cool. was on this show. I see that he's actually starting a course on intergenerational trauma. I know somebody else, Thomas Hubel, is focusing on that a lot in his, um, in his pocket project that is focusing on conflict worldwide. Um, anything that you're seeing or, or that is hopeful in terms of what people are learning about it and how to even, I mean, sometimes it can feel like, hey, how do you ever begin uh-huh. to stop this? I mean, for my own personal life, I, I've experienced trauma in my own life, but then I can trace it. I can trace what happened to my mother. Uh-huh. I don't know about my grandmother. I, I, can, I could definitely trace it back a generation, but I'm guessing it went back um, many generations. It, you know, and I just saw a play actually called uh, What the Constitution Means to Me, um, mm. which I recommend. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. It's about the United States Constitution, which we think of as, well, I guess I think of it as a, a laudable document, but I think, I think less that way after seeing that play, because honestly, the United States Constitution was really created by white propertied men to protect their interests. And 
Um, and then, you know, when you hear about uh, you, or you reflect on, like, for instance, one of the one of the recent Supreme Court cases, the Je- well, it wasn't that recent, 2003, the Jessica Gonzalez case, where uh-huh. basically that, you know, that women are not going to be protected from domestic violence. And that's that's basically the Supreme Court ruling. And and that there are other countries like South Africa, I guess, that has quite a positive rights uh-huh. constitution. So getting back to the United States, when I, you know, in the in that play at the end, they try and get the audience to vote on whether we should get rid of the Constitution oh my or keep it. I know it's like it's actually really it's actually really very well done, very <laughs> engaging, but it makes you think about uh, some of the ways that we're constrained in this country just uh-huh. by the limits of our Constitution. Well, uh, to answer your former question, tying into the Constitution about trauma, the generations. Um, we're finding, first we're finding out that it's actually passed along epigenetically. So you can pass trauma along. What does that mean? So just so that make sure that people understand what that means. So it means that it's not a metaphor, that you can literally pass trauma. Trauma can reflect itself in the next generation by turning on and turning off certain genes, especially around the fight and flight response and your cortisol development that are all linked with trauma. If your parent has experienced trauma, those um, genetic pathways can be influenced. So children are born with a more of a a startle response and a fight and flight and are just more prone to trauma themselves. I don't, I'm definitely not an expert in this field, but I was listening to Claudia Rankin the other day on Uh um, talking about this and she was saying, I think, um, that um, within the Jewish population, actually those genes are turning off uh, post-Holocaust, but in the African-American population, they have been on for, on, I, I don't know if that's the correct language, uh-huh. for 400 uh-huh. years and have not turned off um, uh-huh. because of the level of racism that African-Americans experience in this country. So I think that's just fascinating. And as part of the peace builders are taking notice that the trauma end of things was just, was a little bit more niche and not as well understood, but now Almost every large-scale peace-building program I know has some element of trauma, um, trauma healing, whether it's at an individual level or more of a social healing construct where that is easier to understand. Do you have any sense of what those look like? Because I know, you know, trauma is a hard thing to heal. Uh I've seen some pretty creative ways that people have gone about, you know, at the individual level and some at the group level. Uh Uh-huh. Um, EMDR obviously is uh-huh. much recognized, but at the group level, as, a, as if you're part of a peace building initiative, what have you seen? I can give you a few examples. Um, there's a group called the Peter Alderman Foundation that was created by a uh, physician and his wife who are the parents of, um, their son was killed in 9-11. Mm. And they set up a foundation in his honor to say, how can we express the trauma that we feel and turn it into something positive? So they set up uh, trauma healing clinics in Liberia, Uganda, and Cambodia that brought um, indigenous mental health experts to work with individuals and groups in ways that were culturally appropriate, because not everyone talks about trauma the way we do, with the idea that unless you deal with trauma, you can't do anything else around peace building, development, or assistance. And another example... Because why? Yeah, what's the problem? That people shut down. Mm-hmm. That if, if you're depressed or if you're, um, 
disabled by anxiety or any of the ways that trauma shows up, it can be very hard to reach outside yourself to do the kind of work you need to do to rebuild communities, to rebuild your family. Um, it's just a very basic human need and emotion. Yeah, that if you have a fight flight uh, gene activated, I guess, does that mean that you're more likely to respond defensively or mm -hmm. aggressively? Yeah, for the next generation, certainly. Mm. Um, I was in Colombia recently. There is a huge movement around using yoga and mindfulness in schools mm. and uh, in some of the areas where the FARC is reintegrating mm -hmm. and with victims of violence um, as a way that, that of just, again, kind of easing the trauma, regulating emotion. Mm -hmm. I went down feeling like, you know, wow, this is very niche. And there are 500 people in the audience. Wow. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. So where do you see things? Um, what do you think is needed in the United States, I guess? If this is a peace building case, what needs to happen here to actually uh, change things? There is such a split, I'm feeling, even within the peace building community about the answer to that question. There are a number of people who feel we should be resisting and that we need to be out of the streets. This is a protest kind of movement to change our policy, to change funding, to change um, women's rights. There are all these issues that are so important. And there's a whole other group that says we need to do what we do as peace builders and resolve conflict and polarization one community at a time. So for example, there's a very interesting program called Hands Across the Hills that brings people from Western Massachusetts, a very liberal part of New England, together with a community in Eastern Kentucky, very conservative. One, uh, Kentucky, a very much a coal mining town, Western Massachusetts, a university town, coming together, doing peace-building dialogues. What has been your experience? Why were those two communities chosen? Um, as just, I don't remember the exact impetus, but it was as kind of amalgamations of the, of the two of the most polarized ways mm -hmm. of living in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they've been together now in Kentucky, in Massachusetts, talking about dreams for their children, economic hardships, um, in Western Massachusetts, many people were immigrants themselves or their parents were. In Eastern Kentucky, many had never met an immigrant. So really talking about these issues of just understanding each other as people, so you're not demonizing the other side. Because what I find so scary is we've moved beyond political um, divides to really demonizing and dehumanizing people with different beliefs. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, and uh, well, to stay with hands across the hills for a minute, I. Uh, um how long has it been going and, and where is it at at this point? I think it's been going for about a year. Okay. Um, there's now been at least two trips to each, you know, twice to Kentucky, twice to Massachusetts. I think they're wondering now where to go next. This is one of the key problems of this kind of work is how do you take it to scale? Yeah. So maybe they could add several more communities, and I think they're thinking about that. But how do you make it a movement? Right. How can every community start to do this? Who are the people who might bring that together? Right. And, what, and, and if you could be specific, if you know, I think you do know, about what the processes have been that, that I think Paula Green is, is the person. Yes. Yeah. So what are the processes that she's actually been using to um, facilitate this or to do this kind of work? It's the same kind of work that she did in international conflict. It's getting groups of people together in small groups 
where you're really focusing on getting to know each other as people. Yeah. What is, you know, asking, how did you raise your children? What was your experience growing up? Um, what are your fears? What are your expectations? What do you want the world to look like for your grandchildren? And it's in those conversations, it's what John Paul Lederach calls the moral imagination. You can start to imagine a future together that's so different than what you understood before. But you need that deep personal work. I think this is, you know, the, the, the deep reason why I do this and probably why you do this. I don't want to speak for you. But, you know, um, looking at, like, for instance, Future Search as a process. Uh, mm-hmm. Sandra Janoff was on the show, and, and I've done a number of, of those processes or open space or any process where you're bringing a lot of different diverse people together. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, with Future Search specifically, you know, watching how the zone, you, know, you can get two groups that are so polarized and then you engage them in a process and the zone, you know, that, that zone of polarization just gets mm-hmm. narrower and narrower and narrower because most of the time people agree on an awful lot of things. I mean, mm-hmm. in this country, for instance, I think the reality is even though there's a lot of focus on the polarization, there's a lot of common ground, what people mm-hmm. care about. So um, we're coming to the end of our time. I, I, um, I think it'd be interesting just like, what do you think is in the future for for what do you see on the horizon? Do you think, and maybe do you think, um, well, I don't know if we said enough about the United States in terms of what needs to happen here um, to turn things around. Maybe, maybe you'll stay with that because, yeah, what do you think needs to happen here? I think we all have to do a lot more work in our own communities, even if it's as simple as getting to know someone who's different from you. Mm-hmm. you know, I see it everywhere I go. The people are, I know it's cliche, but they are in their bubbles. Yeah. And I think that even kids are losing the ability to talk with people who are different from themselves. You know, how do you do that? How do you just establish a rapport starting with those kind of neutral subjects and working to the more difficult ones? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to start appreciating difference, learning how to talk across these divides Studying civics again, like really understanding how our government works mm-hmm. uh, locally, state level, and nationally. Starting to be more self-critical. I mean, really looking at the divides. Do we understand the rural-urban divides in this country and the sense of grievance? And can we start to understand what those are so we can start to address them? Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of forums where we can start thinking about what we want our future as the United States to look like? Um, I just think there's a lack of imagination. We're getting so hunkered down into our own trenches that we're losing that ability just to reach out, which is the the DNA of peace building. There's a quote that I use, that peace is the failure of imagination. I don't know who said it. (laughs) I think it's really right on. I mean, it's like, it's so, it really is a failure of imagination. And I also think myself, I've said it many times, and I don't know what you think about it, but it's, I, I really do think that at the core here, um, that empowering women is like really, really key because mm-hmm. if at any of the institutional levels, at the family level, at the organizational level, if you suddenly, if you have much more partnership around gender, I think that um, the tendency towards violence uh, reduces. And I don't know, is that something, do you agree with that? Well, that's interesting. I definitely agree that when women are involved in peace processes, they're more sustainable. Um, I'm very troubled by what I've been reading recently about this blending of anti-feminism with extreme right-wing 
uh, hate groups mm-hmm. and the idea that of uh, the replacement doctrine and that women should not work and they should bear babies so that we'll have more white children. I find that so horrific and so toxic. It makes me think, yes, like we really, we really need to be shoring up the relationship between men and women. And you know, this fight is, or the struggle is not finished. The other reason I think this is that I, I do think not to, not to be um, too Pollyannish or, or to make a big generalization, but I do think what I see in my own life is that women getting empowered, they have an easier time being collaborative. And just the yes. way Leigh McGowey like uh-huh. turned with other, other women, turned uh-huh. that around in Liberia, I have a feeling that I guess I would like to hope that the more empowered women get, the more they focus on what's happening at the international and the, and the local uh-huh. level, they're going to say, you know what, we don't really want to be putting so much money into militarization. We just, it's just not what, we, not what our priority is. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know what, I definitely think that would be a dream. What worries me is that even in the resist movement, how splintered it got and how quickly at a time when we really could have joined forces together as women, again, the kind of um, the identity issues and those, those divisions appeared. So how can we really model the kind of solidarity we want to have? Right. Well, and so much in the United States also, I think, has to do with leadership and, the mm-hmm. tone that, you know, the tone that's being set by the leader. Yes. It has, it's very upsetting because I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the polarization is created by, by a very adversarial tone at the top. That creates a lot of mistrust uh-huh. and then creates a lot of identity group um, polarization that is um, very, very toxic and dangerous, um, mostly for, you know, people of color, for instance, uh-huh. most, most specifically. Uh-huh. Um, it gives people freedom to say things that are, would have been unconscionable five years ago. Right, right. Well, all right, Melanie, is there any words of wisdom that you want to say for the listeners at the, in closing here about, uh, I don't know, anything, the field, the, the future, anything that might come to your mind? And- for anyone who's feeling pessimistic about the world, I just invite you to come into the peace building space. You will find creativity, optimism, people who are such geniuses. You'll find empathy, compassion, Um, ways to connect in ways you might not have thought possible. So just, I hope everyone feels inspired as a peace builder. And just thank you, Susan, for this beautiful platform you've developed for sharing ideas and to to make it such a safe and exciting space. Thank you. That was a a great final word, and I bet it will inspire a lot of people. So thank you very much for your time. And I'm assuming if people want to reach out to you, can they, how would they do, if they want to find more about you, I'm obviously going to post your bio on the website. Um, but uh, anything that people could do to learn more about you other than that? They're welcome to be in touch with me. Uh, you can post my email address here. Okay. okay. And I'm just really, I love talking with, uh, with peace builders and get to help in any way I can. Okay, beautiful. Thank you, Melanie, so much for your time. And uh, I hope to see you again soon. Yes, thank you, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. I hope you learned a ton. I did. I always do with everybody that we interview. If you'd like to reach out to Melanie, you can do so at mgreenberg at humanityunited.org and check out some more useful information about the episode in the show notes. 
While you're on the site, you can leave your comments about the episode right at susancoleman.global under the Peacebuilding Podcast under Melanie's episode. You can also, if you're not already on our list of subscribers to the Peacebuilding Podcast, you can join it there. And we are developing some really great virtual content on women, negotiation, and power. So if you'd like to be notified about upcoming information about that, please put your name on that subscriber list as well. And finally, we love getting shout outs on um, or reviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please leave those there and see you again soon on the Peacebuilding Podcast. Podcast.